0: Good morning. Today's reading from the Word of God comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Please follow along in your own Bibles, on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate, to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us, then, go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: All right. Well, it's good to be with everyone. It's always a little bit nerve-wracking when you preach in, like, a new space for the first time, because every space looks a little bit different. Uh, but it's great to be here. Uh, as Ali said, we've… So, we've been a part… Our family's been a part of the congregation since, I think, last October. Um, My usually we have we sit over here, but we have friends with us, so my families I have to find them again. They're way in the back. My wife is not a back pew person, she's a front pew person, so only friends are getting her back there. So, my wife Julie, an amazing educator, amazing mother, my two daughters Ellie, Samantha, 14, and 13, and then our youngest Joy is five, she's downstairs, and kids' crew. We've loved growing to be a part of of this church over these last months. Um, Just a a little bit about myself and my own background. I've had a number of different roles over the last years. We we come originally, we're from California, so native Californians. Any other Californians? There we go. Two, and then three, four. Oh, good, good. And then I know Pastor Bryn, also from California. That was a great first connecting point for us. Um, So I've… we, our family, served in cross cultural ministry for a number of years. That's where our two of our oldest daughters were born in Spain. Um, I've worked on a couple of church staffs. I currently work as the, still remembering my current title because it's a new job. I am the director of global research and mission theologian for a mission organization called Haggai International. Okay. So I feel very grateful and privileged to bring God's Word before us this morning. So, today we're going to explore how we find life with God, the good life, in a volatile world. How do we find good life in a volatile world? And we, we see this volatility all around us, a world where rich and poor are growing further apart, a world that's in the middle of an ecological crisis. So, there's volatility out there, and then there's volatility individually, and even in our own minds, we struggle with depression and anxiety. Um, we have volatility without and volatility within, and so what we're going to look at today is that life with God, the good life, is found in a very unexpected place. Now, how many people have seen the Disney movie Up? Raise your hand if you've seen Up, All right? So, my family and I just watched it this week, and if we can, oh, there it is, okay. Um, so, if you haven't seen the movie Up, in the movie Up… It starts off with a little boy named Carl, and Carl has quite the mind for adventure and faraway places. And then he meets another young girl in his neighborhood named Ellie, who also has a mind for adventure. And Ellie makes Carl, this young boy, promise someday to take her to Paradise Falls in the middle of the jungle in South America. And so Carl crosses his heart and promises that he'll take her one day. And of course, as the movie goes on, Carl and Ellie, they get married, um, and their life is full of joys and sorrows, the joys of um, finding life together and making a home together, the sorrows of a miscarriage, struggles to make ends meet. Life goes on and on and on, and finally, Carl saves up enough money to get two tickets to South America to go see Paradise Falls. And just as he's about to give them to Ellie, she she becomes ill, and she eventually soon passes away. And as the movie goes on, Carl is just kind of stuck in his grief for years and years and years, and his life kind of becomes frozen in the past. This is Carl's house was once in this little suburban neighborhood, and the city kind of builds up around it. But Carl has kind of walled himself off from the world that's changing around him, and he's walled himself off from people as well. Now, as the story goes on, and this is a Disney movie, he attaches thousands of helium balloons to his house, and it lifts off the ground, and his goal is to get to Paradise Falls so that he can put the house there to fulfill his promise to Ellie. Now, along the way, Carl begins to encounter some unwanted characters along his journey, And they begin to sort of pierce Carl's hard heart, both kind of calling forth love from him and giving love to him as well. And so, we have this um, Russell, a not very successful Boy Scout from a broken family. If anybody remembers the movie well, we have Doug, the talking, very emotionally needy dog. We have Kevin, A female exotic bird from the jungle. This kind of ragtag group of people all join Carl in his journey, and Carl begins to find sort of a new life and a new journey as he begins to open himself to their journeys. And this is a bit of a picture, Carl opening himself up to the vulnerabilities and needs of others. This is a bit of a picture of what the writer of Hebrews is calling um, is calling the people in His time and for us to as well. This is, in, this is the passage, and if you, if you have your Bibles with you, chapter 13, verse 13, let us, "'Let us then go to Him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace He bore, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come.'" I'm going to take a quick pause and start my timer, otherwise I'll, this, this will keep me on track. So, in this passage, what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that full life, life with God, it's not found inside the gate. It's found outside the gate as we go to Jesus. Life is found outside the gate with Jesus. So, what we're gonna do is we're gonna to explore together just two things. What, what does it look like to pursue life inside the gate? And then, what does it look like to find and seek life outside the gate with Jesus? So, we're gonna look at inside the gate and life outside the gate. Um, I wanna give just a quick acknowledgement, um, if you can put the, the, slide, the next slide up. A lot of the inspiration for this comes from. Uh, a book written by a Puerto Rican theologian, and it's called Christ Outside the Gate. Um, And so, I can't get into all the details of the book here. It's an amazing book, Um, but he uses this passage from Hebrews 13 as kind of the center of his understanding of what it means to engage with God in mission in the world, following Christ outside the gate. So before we get into what this passage means for us today, I want to back up a little bit and look at some of the context of the passage and what is the writer of Hebrews doing here in this passage? Because there's some for us in the in the 21st century there might be some sort of strange and unfamiliar language and things that he's talking about. So what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's going back, he's digging back into the Old Testament when the Israelites after they had crossed crossed over the Red Sea, they're wandering in the wilderness. And they're wandering, and they set up their camp in different places while they're in the desert. And when we think of their camp, we can't think about like tent camping. This wasn't like Moses wasn't saying, like, Aaron, did you forget the graham crackers again? And he laughs. No? It's okay. It's okay. I laughed when I said it to myself as I was practicing earlier today, so that, that was enough for me. Um, so, this is, their, this is their home. They were in the wilderness for 40 years, and they would set up camps, sometimes months and years at a time at different places. And the camp is a place to provide them with refuge and security and a pretty dangerous place. And at the very center of the camp is this holy place. It was the very center of the camp, and in the holy place, one time a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, the highest role in the community, the high priest would go into the holy place. He would sacrifice animals. He would sprinkle the different things in the holy place with blood. And what that would do is both signify and make those things clean before God. And not only would it make those things clean, but it was making the people clean themselves, people who were part of Israel. It was making them clean. It was this reminder and this sort of national reset that they were this set-apart people. They were a people to embody God's goodness and love and justice in the world. That's what this Day of Atonement, this sacrifice, was doing. So, again, this language might sound a bit foreign to us, and we could spend a whole sermon series going through the significance of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And that wouldn't be a bad thing to do, but we don't have time to do that today. all I want you to remember is one thing. I want you to remember that there's the distinction that what is clean and pure and holy happens inside the gate, inside the camp. What is rejected, the outcast, the unclean, the sinful, the impure, that goes outside the camp the bodies of the animals that were sacrificed were taken outside the camp and burned because they were unclean. So what is inside the camp is good and pure and clean and holy. What's outside the camp, that's where the rejects go, the outcast, the impure, the sinful. So what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's taking that paradigm and he's turning it on its head. He's really flipping the script on sort of where people thought that holiness and goodness and salvation would happen. They thought it would happen inside the camp, but he's saying, no, no, no. Jesus died outside the camp. Jesus brought salvation, goodness, grace, mercy, and love outside the camp. And not only that, Not only did Jesus do His thing outside the camp, not only did salvation and all the action of God happen outside the camp, but the writer of the Hebrews is saying, we need to go and be there with Him outside the gate. Now, like the listeners of this letter, and it would probably have been read to them, they wouldn't have read it themselves, it would have been read to them as they're listening to this, like them, we have a tendency to think that the good life, the full life, happens inside the gate, inside the camp. That's where we think that the good life happens, not outside the camp where there's danger and insecurity and uncertainty. So, we're going to look a little bit about what this life inside the gate looks like. What does it look like to pursue life inside the gate? Life inside the gate, it's, it's a closed-fisted life, It's a closed fisted life where we wall ourselves off from our neighbor and we wall ourselves off from God. So, life inside the gate, it's this closed fisted life, walling ourselves off from our neighbor and walling ourselves off from God. There's a few qualities to this sort of closed fisted, walled off life um, that all of us, I'm sure, live into on a regular basis, and the first quality of this sort of inside-the-gate life is it's a life that's wrapped up in self-preservation. It's a life that's obsessed with self-preservation. And that's not a stupid response to a volatile world, but that's the tendency that we have is to sort of center in on preserving ourselves in the face of all the things going on in our lives and in this world. If you want to put up the next, uh, the next slide, if, if remembering the story from Up, Carl, at this point in the movie, he is obsessed with preserving a life that he once had. And it was a wonderful life with his wife, Ellie, but that life wasn't a reality anymore. But he had frozen that goodness and was walling off this changing world around him. He was obsessed with self-preservation. And this is what life, pursuing life, is like inside the gate. What We begin to wall ourselves off from others, and not only wall ourselves off from others, but we begin to manipulate those closest to us to begin to serve our own needs to preserve ourselves. We can manipulate and use and abuse others close to us, this world around us, to sort of preserve some sense of stability in this life. Uh, The fourth-century theologian, St. Augustine, he talked about the essence of sin is self-enclosure. He said the essence of sin is self-enclosure. It's this life that's kind of turned in on itself. And that's the essence of this inside-the-gate life, self-preservation, self-enclosure. So, one of the qualities of this inside-the-gate life is self-preservation. Another piece of this inside-the-gate life is trying to preserve sameness in the status quo. It's this preserving of sameness in the status quo to protect ourselves it's this tendency we have to be around people who look like us, believe the same things as us, make the same amount of money and have the same amount of education as us, hold the same political perspectives as we do. It's preserving the sameness, and in our world today, it's getting worse, and some of that is because of And this is an intentional thing that companies on the Internet do. I don't know how many people have heard of the term filter bubbles. So, filter bubbles is this intentional way that Internet companies build in algorithms to push us deeper into perspectives that reinforce what we already think and already believe. So, the Internet is trying to sort of push us into these little micro-communities where we see ourselves as sort of up against all the rest of the world and the world's against us. I I remember over these last few months, we just bought a new house a few months ago, and it's our first house. And I don't know how much time I've spent at Home Depot looking at online reviews of, like, leaf blowers and stump grinders, things I never even knew existed before. And I've noticed over time as I'm on the Internet, scrolling through the internet, more and more ads are coming up about new gutters, new siding, new roofing, new this, new that. And I'm like, as I'm, you know, seeing the internet feed these things to me, I'm like, you know, I'm not this middle-class, middle-aged, suburban house dad. And as I'm thinking, oh, wait, I am that. But I'm, like, I'm resisting that, and I'm seeing the internet slowly sort of craft this persona of who I am and kind of feeding that to me. And I kind of feel it's a little, like, ooh, maybe I should look at that little review. Maybe I should look at that piece of equipment. But this world is fragmenting us into little micro-communities where we're walling ourselves off, seeing ourselves as sort of in these communities promoting sameness and self-preservation, walling ourselves off from the needs, the vulnerabilities, uh, the pain and the wounds, the places that God calls us into to be His hands and feet in the world. So, this life inside the gate, it's a closed-fisted life. It's a closed-fisted life where we wall ourselves off from our neighbor, And we wall ourselves off from God, walled off from our neighbor and walled off from God. But this passage points us in a different direction to finding life in this volatile world. This passage points us to the fact that life is not found inside the gate. Actually life is found outside the gate. Life is not found through having a closed-fisted life, but the calling and the center of living life outside the gate is having an open-handed life, open-handed to our neighbor and open-handed to God. So, this life outside the gate, it's this open-handed life, open-handed to our neighbor and open-handed to God. This this passage, as I've already said a little bit, it really has two surprises for the readers and the people that were listening to it as, as it was spoken. There's really two surprises in this passage that flips things and flips their perspective on its head. The first one is that they were expecting that Jesus, the Messiah, would not have died outside the gate. Their perspective was that salvation happens inside the gate. And so, the first shock is that, wait, the Messiah, the embodiment of all that is good and right in the world, dies outside the gate. Not only does He die outside the gate, but new life springs up through Him outside the gate. So, that was disorienting by itself, that that's where the action, that's where salvation, that's where the good stuff is going on, is outside the gate. And then the second surprise, and in many ways sort of the the center of the message and the challenge for us is, not only did Jesus die outside the gate, but then again, verse 14, let us then go to Him outside the camp bearing the disgrace that He bore. So, the original listeners probably would have thought, okay, okay, Jesus, you did your thing outside the gate. Okay, we can accept that. But you did that so we could stay safe here inside the gate. You did that thing out there to give us some of these little spiritual goodies that we get to consume, whether that's we get to have some little private spirituality that gives us some mental well-being, keeping us sort of consuming, kind of keeping us as little good consumers in our society until we die. Jesus is saying, no, not only did I die outside the gate, not only, a, not only did I make salvation happen outside the gate, but I want you to come out there with me. That's the second surprise. So, what does this outside-the-gate life What does it look like? What does this outside the gate life look like? This outside the gate life, in many simple ways, it's living just an open handed life with our neighbor. And when I say neighbor, I'm not talking about that person who lives next door to us. That person is our neighbor. Neighbor in the Bible is everyone in all of our spheres and all of our circles of life from our household, our family, our friendship, our work community, our broader community in the world. That's our neighbor. So, it's living open-handed lives with our neighbor. And if you look down, if you have your Bibles, if you look down a little bit later in chapter 13, when the writer of Hebrews starts to just say a few simple things of, what does this outside-the-gate life look like? If you look at verse… Hold on, I wrote it down wrong. Let me get there. If you look at verse 16, well, there's kind of two main things. The first, this life outside the gate is a life of praise and worship to God. And then second, very simply, the writer says, and do not forget to do good and share with others. That's that's what he says, don't forget to do good and share with others. So, this life outside the gate It is a life of radical generosity, self-giving love. It's a life where we open ourselves up to the vulnerability, to the needs, uh, to those spaces in our world and in the relationships around us where people are hurting and broken and living generous lives with them. And this can be our nearest neighbor, whether that's a husband, a wife, a friend, a grandchild, a grandparent, a coworker. It's entering into those people's lives who sometimes are the people that we often wall ourselves off from the most. It's taking time for a meal, a walk, pausing in our day to ask questions, to listen to what's really going on in their lives. Uh, it's so easy to wall ourselves off from people's vulnerability and their needs. And this can extend into, uh, into the community more broadly. We live open-handed, generous lives with our neighbors in our broader community. And this is part of what we do with, um, with Serve Sunday. This is part of being an outside-the-gate church for us, is taking one Sunday, on the fifth Sunday, if there's a fifth Sunday in a month, and going out and spending our day of worship in the community. That's part of how we are an outside-the-gate community. But as I was thinking about this passage, I was wondering what it would look like for those who are lower socioeconomic level and there are many in our community not just to be, to be simply people we serve out there but who are people more at the center and at the heart of our community as a church what would it look like to bring the outside in and that's really the new testament vision of the church is this mixed community of different cultures and classes all together worshiping one God. So, this this living open-handed lives that happens in our interpersonal relationships, that happens in our community, and entering into the vulnerabilities of our world. Migrants and refugees, uh, an environment that's in crisis, so many needs in our world. And that doesn't mean we are personally called to solve all of these problems, but it's an opening up of ourselves to the vulnerabilities around us in our interpersonal lives and to the world itself. So, living this life outside the gate, it's an open handed life, open handed to our neighbor, and also open handed to God. It's a life with open hands before God. This life outside the gate, it's a life of vulnerable faith where we open ourselves up to God's transforming and renewing power in our lives. We serve a God who changes and transforms us. And so, it's not only engaging in the vulnerability of others, It's opening up our own vulnerabilities to God and to one another, and allowing the Spirit to be at work to renew and to change us in our lives. This in in verse 14, where the writer writes, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. As he talks about, we don't have an enduring city here. We're looking for that city that is to come. Part of the heart of the point that he's making here is that new city, that new life, that renewal that God promises. It's not something that we secure for ourselves. Whether that's our own personal renewal or the renewal of all creation, that's not something that's in our hands ultimately, that's something that's in God's hands. It's God that brings new life and salvation and renewal. And so, living life outside the gate is opening ourselves up with vulnerable faith to God and His work in our lives and in our world. And as we begin to open ourselves up to that, we're opening ourselves up not only to… Giving of that love ourselves, but we're opening ourselves up at the very beginning to receive that self giving love first from God and allowing that to flow through us to others in our lives and in our world. Now you might be thinking, I'm exhausted. I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I can't think of adding another thing to my life. All this talk of self-giving and engaging in people's vulnerabilities, and I don't want to add another exhausting person or vulnerable person into my life right now. I don't want to add anything else. That's not a bad thought to have. But at the heart of this passage isn't a call to just add things. This isn't like Christianity Plus or 2.0. This isn't just sort of ramping things up to do more. At the heart of this passage is, is that we're called in the midst of the lives that we have to live differently with a different mindset, to where it's not just up to us, but we add Jesus right into the middle of our lives. If anything is added, it's Him. In fact, as some of you are listening to this message, the call to follow Jesus outside the gate actually might be a call to cut things out of your life things that in your life that might be more about self-preservation and self-promotion than about living a life of vulnerable faith with God. So, some of us might be calling to cut things out, not add things. Some of us might be feeling called to engage in a relationship or a need that's right in front of us in a new way. We might be called to that. Some of us might be called to go to a different place where God has put a burden on our heart for their needs. And this has happened to so many, uh, so many people over the centuries who do feel called, sent by God, to literally change their geography and change their place. But whether it's moving far away or engaging differently where we're at, the way we live is the same. Going out, outside the gate, to be with Jesus. Open-handed lives, with our neighbor, open-handed lives with God. Also, if you're feeling weak and weighed down and a little bit unfinished and broken this morning, the truth is you're probably living this life outside the gate more than others. You're kind of just in the right place for this message this morning. This message isn't for people who think their lives are finished and complete and set. If you read throughout Hebrews, the picture we get of Jesus, this is in chapter 5, I think it's verse 2, is of a Jesus who's beset with weakness. A Jesus beset with weakness, a vulnerable Jesus, a weak Jesus we serve a vulnerable God. That's who we go with. We don't, we're not serving, if we think about going to Jesus outside the gate, we shouldn't envision sort of ripped, chiseled Jesus in a tracksuit like 50 yards in front of us or like Peloton Jesus, like, yeah, you wish you looked this good, and then kind of guilting us to just kind of keep going and keep beating ourselves up to move forward. That's not the Jesus that welcomes us. It's, it's the weak and vulnerable Jesus who welcomes us to engage with Him and to walk with Him. If you could show the next slide just briefly. This is one of my favorite titles of a book. It's called Three Mile-An-Hour God, and it's by this Japanese theologian, Kosuke Koyama. And the basic point is that we serve a three-mile-an-hour God a God who walks at the same speed that we do. That's who we go to, this three-mile-an-hour God. So, living outside the gate is a life, an open-handed life, before our neighbor and before God. I want to close with a a personal story of how I met um, Jesus outside the gate in my life. Uh, this is 2001. I was 19 years old, and I was part of a college ministry, um, and uh, we were plan- the college ministry was planning a month-long trip to be in an orphanage in Romania, and I wasn't even sure if I was going to go, and the college minister came up to me and said, Tyler, I want you to lead the team. I'm like 19 years old. And, and I was, I mean, I had a few little leadership qualities, but mostly I was kind of shy and insecure. I still am kind of insecure at times. I was, in my faith, I was a bit of a skeptic and a doubter, um, and I still can be that sometimes too. But the, the college best says, I want you to lead it. And so I was like, gosh, I don't think I want to go. And I finally just said yes, and, and I let it, and I don't think I did a great job leading the team. Um, but what was transformative for me was the time spent with the children in the orphanage. Um, and um, this orphanage that we worked in, we, we stayed there. It wasn't an easy time. There was, we stayed in these little cabins, and the windows were open, and, which meant the mosquitoes went in and out at night. I had so many mosquito bites on my body, I was like, I have to count them because I'm never going to break this record again in my life. And I had 152 mosquito bites, I still remember. 152 mosquito bites on my body. And so, but we are this camp, and this camp was, at a, was a camp for, for boys with disabilities. Um, and so, you know, some of these boys, maybe their parents couldn't afford to care for them. Um, some spent kind of partial time there. Some of the boys' parents rejected them when they were young. Some of the boys never even knew their parents ever. Um, and a lot of the boys had the back of their skulls, they were flat. And I remember asking someone, why, why is that? And he's like, oh, that's because the boys who didn't have any parents They spent the first year of their life on their backs, No, not enough staff to just pick them up and hold them. Um, And so those were the boys that we were spending time with. Um, And there was one particular boy that I remember, Um, and, and I learned from him and from so many others, what I don't remember as much is sort of the Bible studies and the lessons. I remember a bit of that, but because we couldn't communicate super well, it was through translators and it was challenging, what I remember the most was these boys, they just wanted to hold our hand or to sit next to us, just to be with us. And so I learned the power of physical presence um, and physical connection through these boys. And there was one boy in particular that I spent time with, and someone captured a picture. I wish I still had it, but I remember looking at it years later. And in this picture, the boy and I were were hugging, embracing. Um, And you can see both of our faces. His head is resting on my shoulder looking at the camera. I'm looking ahead. And we both look so peaceful and so content in that moment. And I remember as I saw that picture years later, I thought, who is holding who in that picture? You know, who is giving love and who is receiving love? Well, we both were. We both were. And that's where the love of Jesus came alive to me, is through that time and through that trip and it's changed my life completely in ways that I've been happy with and not so happy with but Jesus has been with me and with our family and we're continuing to follow him into a future we know the end goal but we don't know what's going to happen in the middle but it's good so this world this world is a volatile place and we are vulnerable people. Where do we find life? Where do we find the way? We find it as we step out together with Jesus, seeking the city that's coming. As we close to pray, I'd like If you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand, so I'm going to pray for you. So if you're able, I'd like to to invite you to stand, Um, and I'd like you just to invite you in on a little thing that has been part of our family life over these last few years. It's directly connected with a sermon. Through all kind of the ups and downs and unexpected things that's come that have come our way in life, one of the things that we've talked a lot about in our family. is living open-handed, palms up, before God. So what I'd like you to do, if you're willing, is to lift up your hands. What I want you to do first is I want you actually to clench your fists, and I want you to imagine what in your life is keeping you inside the gate—relationships, fears, anxieties, worries, sin. And I'd like you actually to kind of hold that tight for a second. Now, I'd like you to open your hands, and I'm going to pray for you. Gracious God, we stand before you here with vulnerable lives, but vulnerable faith, and hope. We ask that you would enter into our lives, draw us further and deeper into your transformative love. Change us from the inside out. Change us through those neighbors we open our lives to. Change us through the spaces that we walk into. Help us to find you and your renewing love and grace in a volatile world that needs you.